This is the Young Professionals Podcast, proudly brought to you by Adapt Careers, where we speak with young professionals to understand what they do in their roles day to day, how they got there and what they've learned along the way. My name is Luke Marriott. And I am Nicholas Sargent, better known as Sarge. And we are your co-hosts. Sarge, what do our listeners need to do? To stay up to date and support what we're doing, please subscribe, like the episode and leave a comment on any of our social channels. We can't wait to hear from you. Hi guys, Luke and Sarge here and welcome back to another episode of the Young Professionals Podcast. Luke, who do we have on the show today? Sarge, we're diving into the tech space again today with our very special guest, Josh Bloom, who is a product manager at OneFlare, which is an online marketplace focused on connecting quality businesses with the right customers. Josh joined the Israeli Defense Forces in 2013 after finishing his HSC, which is the ATAR equivalent up in Sydney, where he spent two years in the paratrooper brigade. After completing his military service, Josh uh, returned to Australia and enrolled in a Bachelor of Accounting and Finance at UNSW. Josh started working as at Productify in his first year of uni, a young company where he got his first taste of working in the startup environment. In a busy first year of uni, Josh also founded Startup Link, which was Australia's first university society based on or focused on the startup world. Startup Link has since grown to have over 3,000 members and has recently expanded to its second university. So super keen to talk to Josh about that uh, during this chat. Josh has interned at Microsoft where he assisted with growing the Azure cloud business and after uni joined Macquarie Bank as a graduate within the product and technology division of the banking and financial services group. Uh, having spent two years gaining experience in a number of different product teams at Macquarie, Josh moved back to his startup roots in January 2020 when he joined OneFlare as a product manager. So a very colorful history there that we came to talk to you about today. Josh, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Uh, mate, well, the first thing we talk about with people is what they do in their roles day to day. So why don't you take us through what OneFlare is and, and what a product manager does there? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so OneFlare is a startup company that's uh, been around for a couple of years now. Uh, and it operates really to connect Australians uh, who need jobs done uh, with, with businesses who can service that job. So imagine you're a, you need your, your powers out, you need an electrician, or you're getting married and you need a, a wedding celebrant, or you're moving house and you need a removalist, you can go on there and post a job uh, and then get free quotes from different businesses. Cool. And when we're talking about product managers, we've had a few different people on the show so far that are kind of product delivery coaches and whatnot, but we haven't really got into the product management side of things. Do you want to take us through what you're kind of responsible for and what your day-to-day looks like? Yeah, sure thing. So I guess the way that um, I think about a product manager is almost like a, a coach on a, on a football team, right? So you've got everyone on the team, uh, you've got engineers, maybe you've got some mobile developers and you've got maybe backend or front-end developers who are building maybe the website or the different products and features. Uh, you've then got uh, product designers and, and researchers who actually go out and maybe design a product or conduct research about what to build. Uh, and then you've also got people who can assist like maybe data analytics uh, insight people um, who can help out also to extract data about what you're seeing in the product. Um, and the product manager's role is really to empower people within their team to, you know, to bring that all together into one piece, um, help them understand what to build, but also understand how to build it, um, you know, what, what really the ambitions of the business are uh, and translating the business objectives uh, into what the actual product requirements 
and uh, you know what the how what we're actually going to build as a as a team together. So product manager day can look very very different uh, depending on what's happening. It's a very collaborative role where uh, you're working with a whole bunch of different people um, from maybe sales, you know, learning what what getting feedback on what the type of uh, what things customers are saying about the product, maybe different features that they're requesting. Uh, getting feedback from support, maybe there are certain bugs in the product or something that's not working. Um, and, you know, obviously conducting our own research as well to see what's happening in the market, um, to see what trends are happening. Maybe there's a new um, a new vision or strategy that you're looking to achieve. Uh, and then really working to translate that, um, those business objectives and the, and the feedback into actual technical um, requirements that, you know, you can work with the different team members to go and build that. So um, it's a really, really unique role. It's quite an, an, a new role in the industry that probably hasn't been around uh, for a long time. So yeah, it's really interesting. Um, every day looks different and, uh, and yeah. And Josh, when you're, when you're coaching this football team and uh, all your players aren't necessarily talking to one another the way you want them to, the stars aren't aligning. As a product manager, how do you um, reset and get them all back on the same page? Yeah, so I think the, the trick to doing that is really bringing everyone onto the journey as early as possible. So the worst thing that you can do in, in product management is be more of like a dictator or a commander where this is what I say goes and, and just go and do this or handing over some requirements to developers to go and build something. Um, you get much better outcomes and really utilize different people's skills um, if you actually bring them along a lot earlier in the process. So even when you're going out to speak to customers or when you're um, having strategy sessions or whatever it is, actually bringing all these different people, um, you know, when it, where it's required and where it's, where it's necessary um, into those conversations really early on, because you can, they actually have amazing ideas um, and, and it really gives them a sense of why they're building what they're building. Um, and I think that sense of meaning uh, really helps to make sure that everyone's on the same page and that you don't necessarily need to have that reset. Um, obviously sometimes it's required, but, um, but it really makes it a really great environment for everyone to feel like they're a part of the journey as opposed to just, you know, being mercenaries. Is an example of that something like, you know, facilitating, um, backend engineers or developers that are working on the technical side of a product going and sitting with say a customer service person and actually hearing what customers are saying about the product. Is, is it that kind of facilitation that you're kind of talking about when you're getting everyone buying from the, from the whole, um, from the whole view of the product. Yeah. So there are a lot of different ways that I guess that can manifest itself. Um, one thing which one player does, which is really awesome. We actually have a, something called project 180, which is about spending 180 minutes a month, um, in your 180 minutes in your, in your customers shoes. So we actually have um, programs. Uh, there's a product called Full Story, for example, where you're able to um, to actually view your customers' uh, interactions with the platform um, when they're on the website, and it actually records certain sessions, and you're able to then go and view that um, and see how they're using it. Be like, oh, how come they're clicking on this button, but it's not doing anything? Um, or you can, I can see that they keep on clicking into something and expecting, you know, maybe some job details to appear, but it's not, but nothing's happening. Uh, and it's a really great way to actually uh, get customer insight. Um, and it's a bit of that ethnographic research, which is really powerful. 
Um, and everyone in the, in the company is encouraged to, it's a voluntary program, but everyone's encouraged to do it. Um, and, you know, have, we have sessions every week that people from, you know, someone that might've started the day before at OneFlare all the way to people that have been there for, you know, for five, six years, um, will both be in the same session, be able to give feedback. Um, and that encompasses roles from sales, support, engineers, product, everyone. Um, and that's a really powerful tool that I think has been great to um, both actually see what, how customers are interacting with the product, but also bring everyone at work along to, with that journey. Um, and yeah, I think it's really, really awesome. Really comes back to that, that point that a lot of people talk about that you really need to be able to empathize with people to, um, to, to be successful, whether that be working as a product manager or working as an advisor or consultant, if, if you can really put yourself in the other person's shoes and, and see the problem from their perspective, I think that um, it bring, brings a lot to, to what you can do when you are trying to solve a problem. Yeah, hundred um, percent. You know, I think one of the toughest roles of a product manager is to prioritize, um, you know, so let's say you have all these different features that sales or businesses are requesting for, uh, and then you have your own vision of where you want the product to go and you need to be able to efficiently prioritize what your team is working on next. So you have all these different possibilities, but you only have, you know, a certain number of people to actually build the product. You need to decide what is going to have the biggest impact, um, for this, for the same effort. Um, and it really comes down to, to prioritizing that. And as you mentioned, empathy comes very much into the, the foreground of that decision. Um, so you know, you need to both be able to say, all right, this product, this feature, maybe you'll have a really good impact on revenue for the company and making us money. Um, but this other feature um, is really going to improve the experience of customers and maybe the correlation between building that and getting dollars isn't as clear, but ultimately you want to make a really beautiful and delightful experience for customers because that's the best way to keep them coming back. And, you know, we'll obviously have flow and effect to, the business's success. Josh, it's easy to think about what a product is in a tangible sense. You know, like if you go and buy toothpaste from the supermarket, you can understand that that's a physical product, but it's, it's a little bit difficult to imagine that if you haven't worked in a tech environment, like what a product is on a, on a website. Do you want to step through what a, you know, single product that a product manager would be working on um, through say a life cycle of if they're thinking about it and then they put it into implementation and then it's live on the site? Yeah, sure. So I think a good example of that, which I'm sure everyone can relate to is Instagram um, and Instagram stories. So you can imagine that um, Instagram used to exist without stories. You just used to upload a photo and, and that was that. Um, and then I think they got it from Snapchat, the idea, but kind of made it a lot better. Um, so they made this new feature called stories, which allows you to capture moments as they happen and upload it. Um, and then you can, you know, uh, the you know, product manager would have been responsible with their team to do some research to see maybe, okay, Snapchat has this feature, but um, we don't think it's being utilized so well. How can we make it better? You know, I think as a product manager, you don't want to, when you're doing research, you don't want to just get the parity of a certain feature somewhere else. You want to really make it awesome and a lot better to convince people to use your product over someone else's. Um, so it'd be about doing research to find out what works, what doesn't work. Um, then going out and, do, and building a prototype and doing some testing with users um, to see how that would work. Uh, and then obviously um, deciding what features to bring in it. So, you know, I think Instagram have things like you can put in the, the lyrics of a Spotify song or 
Um, you can add filters and add text and emojis and all that kind of stuff. So um, that's what a product would be. Um, so for example, at Instagram, you have a product manager for, you know, stories. You'd have one for the photo upload functionality for Instagram TV, like all those different things that you interact with um, on a product would often have different product teams working on that. Um, and I think the way that um, that product is structured will very much differ by company. Uh, you know, there's massive, there's massive products like uh, massive companies like Instagram, you'll probably have a product person for a very, almost a small feature that you'd think about. Whereas at OneFlare, because, you know, obviously we are a growing company um, and don't have the same luxury of potential of having a product person for every single button, um, you know, my role, for example, is looking at the business side of the platform. So I may manage, you know, three to five products, for example. Um, so, which I actually really enjoy because it gives me a really wide scope of things that I can work on. And um, every product differs so much that you learn a lot of different things from each one. Josh, you, you talked before about understanding the, the skill sets of the people that you're coaching. What would you say that your uh, key skill set is as a product manager at OneFlare at the moment? So I'd say, uh, are you asking the, the strength that I have or? Uh, oh, just your skill set more broadly. Um, like what, what, are your, what are your key things that you, you hang your hat up on if someone said, well, hey, like what makes you good at what you do? Yeah, so I think um, you need to be able to have uh, communication is probably the, the biggest one. Like, you know, engineers, their job is to code. Designers' uh, job is to design. A product manager's job is to communicate. So it's being able to communicate with customers when you're doing research, be able to communicate with sales and support to let them know about new products that are coming up, being able to communicate with the CEO to let them know business updates. So um, there's a lot of communication required. So I'd say a strong, like, written and verbal um, communication is, is really important because it allows you to effectively communicate with your team and obviously if being concise and uh, as possible um not just waffling on but being able to get the message across in a way that is really easy to understand um especially because you are working with so many different types of personalities in my role um it's really important that you try and make the message unified that everyone can understand it and if you don't go too much into details oftentimes um, so yeah, I'd say communication is really important. Um, prioritization as well. So not just like I mentioned, prioritization of features, but being able to prioritize your own time is really important because it's often really easy to get sucked into the day-to-day, -day, um, issues that may arise as products or maybe you know, meetings and that type of thing, but actually being able to set aside time to think about the strategy um, and to really have that creative space where you can get into that flow state um, is really important. Um, so someone that's able to manage their time well. Um, and last thing I'll, I'll mention is execution skills. So actually being able to execute on what you what you what you promise or what you what you deliver. So um, for example, if you know, I'm chatting to the CEO and we say, um, you know, it'd be really great to get this product out by the end of March. Um, it's really important that you're actually able to commit to that and, and, you know, provide estimates maybe of when you expect something to be done and then do whatever you can to get that done. Um, I think being able to be reliable, um, trustworthy is really important because if you make all these promises and then don't, then are following up, then you lose that sense of respect with, with the business. Um, so I think that's, that's a really core value as well. 
Josh, I'm only guessing, but is there one kind of experience in your past that has prepared you well for those things? Like you said, you know, very clear communication, um, teamwork, execution of what you kind of promised to do. Um, is there anything that stands out that prepared you for this role? Yeah, I can see you kind of hooking me in there for, um, <laughs> for, <laughs> for speaking about the uh, my experience in the IDF um, as a paratrooper. So, yeah, so I, I joined that when I was uh, 19, um, when I was 19 and 20, spent some time over there. Um, which is, a, yeah, like, as you mentioned, a really good experience. Um, I learned a, a hell of a lot, um, there about, you know, given, being given a mission, um, and really where failure isn't an option, right? Cause it can be often a life and death scenario. So what I really learned about there is that you're actually able to train for pretty much anything. Like when I first carried a, you know, 30 kilo backpack, um, for, for two weeks on end or whatever it is. Um, you know, being able to, at first it was really, really hard, but over time your body actually adjusts and you get used to it and, um, you're able to get better at a lot of things. And I think that taught me that you're actually able to adapt, um, to almost anything, uh, you're able to train and be, become prepared. Um, and th- your level of preparedness will really determine the outcome. Um, I think sometimes whether it's, you know, studying for an exam or, um, or, what, or an assignment, you know, the amount of effort that you put in is really going to be what you get out. And yes, you have those, those kind of people that can just fluke it. Um, but we're not all like that. Oftentimes it's about being prepared, putting the time in. Um, and I think the same thing goes for products as well. Um, you know, it's a, it's a role that isn't easy and there's a lot of expectation on your, on your shoulders, um, with that oftentimes without the appreciation or the recognition. Um, but it's that sense of achieving something and the sense of, you know, climbing to the top of a mountain and being able to say, this is what we built, um, which I think probably across both the, my experience in the military and in product, um, is really, is really awesome. Is it, it fair to say that when you're in the, uh, you're in the trenches as a product manager, as, as much as you are, if you're in the military? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, I think oftentimes it's, you know, that, that I'm going out and recognize um, and knowing what you're building is for the greater good, um, of the company or for whatever, um, is really important. Um, yeah. So I think like, as you mentioned, communication, being able to think calmly under pressure as well. Um, like there've been times when I'm in meetings and the CEO might say, how come this isn't, you know, how come this isn't going as well as we thought? Um, and it's being able to really like not, not lose your yourself in, a, in that, in that respect, being able to think calmly, you know, collect evidence and really, and really, um, I think that's definitely helped and, and is really important. Jumping back a few steps, you studied your BCom at UNSW. What was the driver of that decision? So growing up, I guess my, my dad was uh, involved in, in accounting and, and, uh, and business. So oftentimes, you know, when we're driving to school or whether um, just having conversations with him, I was really interested in, in what he would relate to me about his experience uh, building a business. Um, and I think that that probably started my interest in, in business and accounting and finance. Um, and when I finished school, to be honest, I didn't have a great idea of what I wanted to do. Um, I knew that I didn't want to be a doctor or I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, and I think being able to say, what well, you don't want to be maybe pushed me towards saying, all right, well, I can kind of see myself being in business and accounting and finance seem to be really good starting points for that, um, to build that business foundation. Um, so. I would say there, that's what, that's what helped me choose, uh, accounting and finance and UNSW is obviously like a really good university, um, in Sydney. So, um, so yeah. 
And when you got there that you saw that there was a, a, a bit of a hole in that uh, there was nothing that connected uh, students to startups. So you started Startup Link. Do you want to take us through um, how you did that and, and what you learned from that? Yeah, so in my first year of uni, um, I was working at a startup company called Productify um, and really just, you know, kind of casual, flexible work. Um, but I found that I was really learning a lot more than I expected. And the reason for that is at a startup company, oftentimes they have really limited resources. So one day I'd be doing marketing, the next day I'd be doing sales and walking the streets, trying to pitch up products, you know, to different businesses. Uh, the next day I'd be working with the, with the tech team to actually like watch them code and, um, and work on like product decisions and really work, work, working cl really closely with the founders on like why they're making certain decisions. And I, I was just really learning so much. I couldn't believe it almost. So I went back to uni and I remember it was, it was a week. So like the orientation week at UNSW and there were all these stalls um, spattered across the place. And there's the accounting society and the business society and the law society and all these different societies designated for certain, like really, uh, you know, they're all sponsored by, Combank or KPMG and all these massive companies. And I'm like, where's all the startup stuff? Like, I'm really interested to learn more about the startup space, but I looked around and there was nothing for me. Um, so I did a bit of digging and uh, discovered there was no real society designated to the startup world, um, both at UNSW, but more broadly in Australia at that stage. Um, so I thought, why not actually uh, start my own society? Um, and I thought, you know, it's a great experience to expand my network, um, to build, almost have experience building a business. Um, uh, but because I'm not really putting any much of my own equity or, or my own money into the business, um, it's really just like a, no, there's no real potential of much loss happening. Um, but so much to gain in terms of experience and, and everything. So, so yeah, I built that in, uh, I think it was 2016. Um, and have since then handed over the reins to different presidents throughout the years. Um, and I think they just, clocked over the 3000 member mark, which is really awesome. Um, and have recently expanded to UTS, um, the university of technology, Sydney. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's been really great to see them continue to grow. And I'm still involved, um, quite actively in like an advisor capacity. Um, and ultimately what that startup society does, um, is looks to connect students to the startup world through, uh, networking events, um, skill development opportunities. So I think we ran like an introduction to coding workshop. Um, they've also gone on to have things like a, the first startup career fair. They actually partnered with the New South Wales government um, and had like speed dating with all these different startups um, and students. Um, so that's been really successful. So yeah, the, it's been a great experience. And um, I think that experience of getting involved in society at university um, was actually really useful for me to talk through in interviews as well. Um, and probably help me land some of these um, these these roles later on. Yeah, Josh, you're not the first person to talk to us about going to a university and be like, oh, I'm looking for X, Y, and Z to you know learn a bit more about, and they didn't find it, so they just go, oh, I'm just going to create my own society because I want these people around me. But then I think the biggest part of that is that they have leveraged that experience to then get a job afterwards. Um, and it's just something to talk about that like very few people would have to talk about on their resume. Like, can, do you just want to talk about how you use that with say, you know, helping get your internship at Microsoft and going through that process? Yeah, I think, um, and I've actually been involved in interviewing a bunch of candidates at the different companies that I've been a part of since. And what I've seen is that 
students, oftentimes it's really hard to get that first bit of experience um, at a company that you can talk to. It's like a bit of a chicken and egg situation where you need the experience to get the job, but you need the job to get the experience. Um, and I think that um, getting involved in a society at uni allows you to get a much broader experience than just your studies, which you can talk to. So very often when I was interviewing candidates, let's say at Macquarie Bank, um, they would often give me, you know, say, tell me about a time that you've worked together in a team to overcome a challenge. And they talk about like a group project at uni. And it's fine to talk about that maybe once throughout the interview process. Um, but the really good candidates are ones that can actually talk to different experiences. Maybe it's a, a volunteering opportunity they had somewhere, or maybe it was work experience um, at a company or an internship or whatever it is. Um, but really being in a society gives you a lot more. It's like a very easy way to get a lot more um, experience to talk to throughout the interview process. Uh, and the fact that I started one, I think really was probably quite unique in a sense um, to employers' eyes. Um, so it definitely didn't hurt my chances of getting, getting these roles. Um, but yeah, so I definitely do recommend to students that they, they try and find a society that either their friends are a part of, um, that generally, genuinely piques their interest because you're not going to last long in society if you're just there for the resume, to put on your resume. Um, like you actually need to have added value to that, that society in order to speak to it in later interviews. If you just say, oh, I was a member of the business society, it doesn't really mean anything. You need to actually have contributed to it and added value in some way, shape or form. Yeah, and I suppose with that kind of context, if you're super driven and you're thinking, you know, I need to get more things to put on my resume or talk to in interviews, you can kind of come into applying for whatever a society might be with, um, I guess, predetermined goals of I want to create, you know, X subdivision of this committee and get a hundred people sign up by the end of the year, the kind of thing. Like you can really create your own goals more so than you probably could in, you know, a, a big company as a really junior person. Um, as you said, with pretty limited risk to you because you've got the safety net of basically the university around you. Like it, it's a really awesome opportunity to kind of do what you want um, in, in a productive way to, to show that, you've got those skills um, in an environment that you probably wouldn't have access to um, outside of that. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Oh, I think, um, I think just looking at what Startup Link's done, you have 3,000 members and you said that you, and you're, you're just expanding into to UTS. What was it like initially when you had no one and it was just you and you probably had to approach the uni and, and say, hi, I'm Josh and I want to, start my own foundation do they think you were crazy yeah so it was really about convincing first of all it was about um finding someone to work with um so i you know i met someone at uni um name was steve and i knew that he was really interested in entrepreneurship um, and startups um so i kind of went to him and he was actually volunteering at I think, the combank store at the time which is really funny now um but um, I went to him and said, hey, I had this like crazy idea. Um, and I told him about my idea for the startup society. And he's like, bro, that's awesome. It sounds really cool. Um, and he'd love to be involved. So um, so I think me and him initially worked together. Um, had I think we had some friends over who were, who were all at um, UNSW. Had them over for a night um, of drinks and like kind of pitched startup links to them. Uh, it wasn't called startup link at that time. Um, 
pitched the startup society to them and told them why it'd be really good. And I think we had like 12 of them who wanted to join um, like the initial executive team. Um, and yeah, so once we had that team, uh, we then, you know, myself and Steve worked with uh, ARC, who was a UNSW like student body, um, whatever they're called, and worked to really understand what it takes to be approved as a new society. And it probably took about two months, which I think is relatively quick for a, um, compared to other societies. Um, and you have to really prove that nothing else exists on campus that is like yours um, or like your society or what it wants to do and achieve because they don't want to have too much crossover. So it was really about approving that. Um, it and then, sounds like that would have been pretty easy for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there actually had been some kind of society beforehand, which had since become defunct, which was focused on entrepreneurship. So I had to actually convince the university that they weren't operating because they already had like a Facebook page. <laughs> so yeah. that's really the hardest, the hardest bit. Um, but once they realized that they weren't actually operating, that was pretty easy to get that approval. Um, and yeah, then you get some funding from the university to help kickstart your events and, you know, you get a banner and all that kind of stuff. So it was really exciting when we did get that approval. Super. Josh, let's move forward to when you've got uh, your internship at Microsoft and then you got, kind of move on to the grad program at Macquarie. You've obviously got, you know, that super keen interest in getting into the startup world and you had all that awesome experience. Like, can you just talk through the decision making process to, you know, apply to one of the, probably one of the bigger businesses in, in Australia and go through that more structured grad program um, and kind of the, the benefits and, and cons of doing that as opposed to working in, in the startup environment? Yeah, so this was a good question that I, I kind of grappled with myself, um, especially since I'd been really involved in the startup world. It was like, how could I go to Microsoft, you know, and abandon the startup space? Um, but from speaking to a lot of mentors that I had around me, um, you know, pretty much everyone was unanimous in saying that you can always go back to the startup world. It's always going to be there. Um, but oftentimes what they've seen is that people who purely go into the startup space um, once the business grows, they often lack a bit of that um, organizational know-how um, and about culture and what it takes to kind of run an efficient business. Um, so they, they, it was really recommended to me that I go and, and embark on working in a, big, in a bigger company um, so that I can, number one, build that credibility, which will help later on um, to land other roles and also so that I'm able to kind of learn from the best in a sense. Um, so that, that kind of led me to go to Microsoft um, where I was able to really, you know, really get an awesome experience um, with other interns there, but also just learning from the business. And, you know, Microsoft is such a, such a good operator um, and learned, I learned a hell of a lot there about, um, about that company. And then uh, I guess my, I had the opportunity to stay at, at Microsoft in like a sales capacity, but I was really at that stage had done some research into product management and, I knew that it was a space that I wanted to head into um, when the, this wasn't possible at Microsoft because it's a US-based company. Um, so I knew that to be able to get into a product and technology rotation program at Macquarie would really give me uh, that first step in, uh, into that world of product management. Um, I probably knew that I didn't want to stay at Macquarie for you know my whole career. Um, but that it was a really good experience to, to learn from one of Australia's best companies um, who was also doing some really cool stuff um, surrounding like open banking and they you know, they had a really good mobile app and I was really impressed with Macquarie's digital capabilities. So I knew that it was a good place to, you know, 
pillar in the ropes. Yeah, it's probably something that's a bit underrated um, in that how technically advanced, you know, the big banks are and, and the big kind of big four are, and they've all got tech teams that you can go into and get that experience too. Like, did you appreciate that when you're at uni or did someone kind of go, oh, hey, you can go to these big corporates and do this stuff too? I think that um, when I was applying for grad program, um, I was looking at all the different companies that were on offer, you know, in like the grad websites and you do, you do some research and applying for graduate programs is really time intensive. Um, like I'm sure you guys have done it as well, but it's, uh, you know, first you have to fill out this massive online questionnaire and you have to like update your CV and your cover letter for that particular company. And then you have to, if you get past initial initial phase and there's like all these testing that goes on um, and it's a really time intensive process. And I knew that I didn't have time because I was working at Microsoft at the time. I didn't have time to apply to like a hundred different companies. I had to be selective about the ones that I applied for. Um, so I really did my research and was quite selective in the ones that I applied for because I knew that rather apply to less, but give more in that process and just like splatter um, and hope something lands. Um, so, so yeah, Macquarie really, um, I guess, uh, spoke to me in that sense where, um, I did think that they were in a really good place, um, and doing some awesome things. Um, I had a friend who was working there and he started as a grad the year before me and he had amazing things to say about the company. So that probably also helped, um, help me in that process. And when you were going through that process of saying, okay, well, I've got a hundred companies to choose from and I can only apply to so many, what were the key things or key drivers of the decisions you made around where you actually applied? So I think, first of all, you probably have different filters that will reduce that number. So for example, okay, what is the industry that I want to work in? You know, do I want to go into mining or do I want to go into financial services? Do I only want to go into tech? Uh, do I want to go into healthcare? Like there are all these different industries that, that are available. Um, obviously only a certain number of businesses and probably, probably the bigger types um, off a grad program. Um, and, you know, I think the most popular ones are often like the big four because people, people look at their, their, uh, their learning experience at uni to say, okay, I studied accounting at uni. I need to go work for an accounting company. Um, and what I can tell, and I'd really do recommend to, to potential grads is don't think that just because of what you studied means that's where you have to go and get a grad job in. Um, employers really do look much more at who you are um, rather than what you actually studied. And obviously there are certain, you know, certain jobs like to become a lawyer that you need to have studied law for. Like I'm not saying get an accountant to go and apply for a law, legal job. Um, but, but especially for those business related subjects, um, there it's much more about um, who you are and, and what you can apply for um, and what soft skills you have and how trainable you are and open to being trained. Um, I think those are the characteristics that are a lot more, um, likely to make you get hired than getting a distinction in accounting. Um, so yeah, I definitely recommend that. On the due diligence point that you, when you're looking at the different companies, like let's just kind of, it might seem obvious, but let's really nail down into what kind of things you're looking for in a company to kind of fit those filters and, and where you're getting that information from. Like I think everyone can go to, you know, the company website and read the about us, us section, but what are you looking for when you're trying to figure out, you know, what a particular team is about in a company or how are you finding that information? Yeah. So obviously as a starting point, it's probably on those like central websites that kind of collate all the different grad 
programs or internship programs. Um, so maybe you'll see a whole bunch of a list of companies. So first you'd go through that industry and say, this is where I want to work. And maybe you don't know exactly, you have a rough idea. So maybe you apply, you, you do some more research than companies in that space. Um, what I then do is check out, okay, what, what go into those specific company websites and say, and look, often have really nice flashy, um, you know, adverts and videos or whatever it is um, of people who work at those companies. Um, and I think they've done a really good job of, of making that quite transparent to, to uh, potential candidates about what it would look like to work at that company. Um, so once you've done through that, maybe you've seen something you like, something you don't like, something that's really spoken out to you. Um, you then, uh, what I would do is actually go and look on LinkedIn um, for people who are actually working in that particular division um, of that company um, and often go to people often and, and reach, then the next step would be to actually reach out to those people um, to, to just ask some questions, say, Hey, my name's Josh. Um, you know, I'm, I'm about to apply for a grad program at Macquarie. Um, I saw that you're working that you started two years ago and that you're working. Um, I, you know, I'm really interested to learn more about your experience. Um, and I think my advice to be would be not to, message those that are probably really senior uh, if you have some connections that you can get to like access to those people but actually message those people that maybe started as a graduate last year or two years ago because their experience is probably much more relevant to you um, they've also been through the hiring process a lot more recently so they would actually be able to give you tips for that um, and if they do like you chances are they'll probably refer you on to their boss or to someone who can actually hopefully help out um, you know, give a recommendation for you for that process. So like start low and then work your way up. But um, I think that's a really good way. Obviously not everyone will reply. Will reply. Um, so don't like be resilient and, you know, feel free to message more than one person if they don't reply. Um, but just really hustle, you know, you've got to have a bit of um, like an intro, they call it chutzpah to be able to go and just like put yourself, put yourself out there um, to, to go and really just be proactive and uh, try and give yourself some kind of advantage to the regular person who's just applying straight on the website. There's one thing you said there that I think is super important that universities or students don't really um, kind of appreciate is that when, you know, say you message someone and go for a coffee with them if, and they're, they're, um, they're working at, you know, say Macquarie, if they like you, Macquarie or businesses like that are always looking for people that are, you know, that they rate to bring on. So they will go and tell their boss, but like, oh, this person's good. Like, you know, go and talk to them. They would be a good hire. It's the, it's the, I think there's an attitude with university students coming out where it's like, oh, please hire me. Like, I, I you know, you're begging companies to hire you, but they're equally looking for, um, you know, motivated people to, to bring on. So if they find someone that they like, they'll be motivated to kind of chase you as well. So I think that's, that there's that important kind of perspective shift that people need to appreciate as well in that process. Yeah. I think, um, actions speak a lot louder than words and being actually demonstrating, it goes back to what I was mentioning about interview examples that you can talk to, but actually having examples and demonstrating that you're proactive and that you are ambitious, um, you know, speaks, speaks volumes. And it's very easy for someone to say when they're interviewing, Oh, I'm a really innovative thinker. But if you can't demonstrate that, then it's just, it's just words that, that anyone can say. Um, so, same thing when you're reaching out to someone for coffee um, and you show that you're really keen and you're really um, proactive, 
uh, that's, that's a really good example that they will then say to their manager and say, Hey, I actually just went for coffee with Josh. He seemed to be really keen. You know, maybe he doesn't, he doesn't have as much experience in this space, but I think he has a lot of potential. Um, and I think just doing the small things can add up to make a big difference in your career. 100%. Josh, I think that's fantastic advice and a, a really great spot to leave it, mate. So thanks for coming on the show today. We really enjoyed talking to you about OneFlare and, and how you got there. So thanks very much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me and uh, good luck, everyone. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have a profession you would like to know more about, a question you would like us to ask, or a story you would like to tell, please reach out to us on the social channels at either the Young Professionals Podcast, TYPPAU, or our personal profiles. We'd love to hear from you.